This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. I'm very excited to have Jason Kyler, who is the CEO of Warner Media Online. Hi, Jason. Hello, Peter. How are you? I'm good. I don't normally have to do disclosures at the beginning of this podcast, but here I have to say that uh, Vox Media is working on a CNN original documentary, and I'm involved in that in some capacity, so we should clear that up right at the beginning. Um, did you know I was working on a CNN documentary for you? I did not know that. All there I would go. ask is please make it a good one. Um, I will do what I can. Um, Jason, the last time we talked was December when you announced that you were blowing up the movie business. Um, you didn't say that, but a lot of us did. Um, you were going to make all of your theatrical movies streaming day and date throughout this year. People freaked out about it. Um, you said it was, was going to work out. We're now a few months into the, the experiment. How has it gone? What have you learned? Yeah, so... Um we're ha very happy with it, Peter. Uh, and, and I mentioned this publicly before, but I'll, I'll restate it, which is, you know, we're four movies into it. Um, and it's obviously early in the year still. But based on what we've seen so far uh, and what I've already shared publicly, um, we're very encouraged. And we're encouraged for a number of reasons. Number one is that, you know, for those people that are comfortable, they're showing up at the box office. And Godzilla versus Kong over the last uh, 12 days is a great example of that around the world. And on HBO Max, people are clearly showing up and excited and consuming uh, the movie selection that we have, especially these new movies that you're referring to. So uh, I mentioned publicly a couple of weeks ago at our investor day that, you know, we're seeing that they're among the top titles on the service. They're helping with churn reduction um, and, and certainly a lot of um, subscriber acquisition uh, as well, we mentioned publicly. So um, so it's doing what we, we, we certainly uh, anticipated and, and certainly had hoped for. Um, and I'm excited to share that. What's, what's your sense of, of who's choosing to stay at home and, and watch a Kong movie versus go to a theater? Are you able to talk to the folks who are going to the theaters and figure out why they're going there as opposed to watching it at home? Well, I haven't, I, I haven't personally talked to mm -hmm. and done the research myself, but uh, intuitively, I think it really just comes down to people's comfort level with getting uh, you know, out of the home and, and heading into a theater. Um, uh, I'm sure convenience is certainly, uh, you know, factors into that as well. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, and this is really the uh, reason why we made the decision, it's about empowering consumers so that they get to make the decision and they choose what's best for them and their families. And so there's no doubt that there's a lot of families that are going to theaters and there's a lot of families that are watching on HBO Max. So it really is, you know, you'd have to ask every individual as to what their decision criteria was. Uh, I mean, there's obvious potential benefits for, for HBO and, and Warner Media and your owner, AT&T. Um, you know, from the outside, it looked pretty obvious that you were trying to give HBO Max, a, a sort of jolt um, and a way to sort of distinguish uh, yourself from your streaming competitors. So you, at the time you said, you know, this is a one-year decision. We're not making any decisions about next year. Uh, the owner of Regal Cinema says you've got a deal for next year that says you'll go back to showing movies in theaters. Um, have you committed to, to doing that with all, the, with all the movie chains? Well, a couple of things that, you know, even when we announced this, uh, I was very, very careful to let people know that we're going to be proud supporters of exhibition and cinemas for decades to come, I believe. And, and, and I say it for a very simple reason, because consumers love going to the movie theaters. And, uh, and, and, and given that, uh, I think it's our responsibility to serve them in that way. And so, so I don't want anyone to misinterpret, you know, kind of what we're doing right now as any indication that we're not believers in uh, the movie going experience. And so uh, there's hundreds and hundreds of millions of people that, that love that experience. 
and we're very happy to serve them going forward. So in terms of the future, in terms of 22 and beyond, as you're referring to, um, I think it's fair to say that, A, we're going to be investing aggressively in the motion picture format. Um, again, we're doing it because fans love it. Uh, and, 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 you know, personally, I can say that I love the notion of being able to, on any given night, have an experience that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Not everybody wants to sit down and commit to a, you know, multi-week or multi-month uh, story, which is a series. And so, um, so it's, it, we're excited about producing both. Um, but j- just to be clear, you, movies will go back to theaters in 2022. If I want to see a Warner Media, if I want to see a Warner Brothers movie next year, the, f- the day it comes out, I'll have to go to a theater, right? I think you'll see two types of movies, uh, Peter. You know, there's certainly going to be the epic and the big, you know, uh, motion pictures that will go to theaters uh, for sure, and they'll go to theaters first. But there's also going to be a number of movies that we proudly produce at Warner Brothers that go to HBO Max on the first day as well. Um, and so, uh, and so, I just think that you know, and I said this last year as well, which is I don't think you're going to see the world go back to 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the world is changing, and, and and that's the way the world's supposed to work. And so we're gonna we're gonna obviously adapt to that, and in many ways lead the charge there. So I'm assuming that's the big budget sort of spectacle movies like a like a Kong movie or Dune, um, which this year I'll be able to watch at home. But if it came out next year, I'd have to see it uh, in, in theaters just to just to beat this one into the ground. Yeah, no, that's okay. So I think it's very fair to say that a big you know, let's say a big DC movie, uh, for example, uh, you know, the Batman, for example, uh, it's very fair to say that that would go exclusively to theaters first and then go to somewhere like an HBO Max after it's in theaters. What do you, what do you make of, of Disney, which for a long time and then uh, even after you guys had made your announcement in December and, um, and said, no, we're, we're going with theaters, going with theaters, Black Widow's coming out in May. And then just recently they pushed it to uh, July and then said, also, you can stream it at home day and date. Um, what, is it, what does that mean to you? Is that sort of a one-off again for the pandemic or is that even Disney rethinking their commitment to theaters? <sighs> Gosh, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not obviously inside uh, Disney, and so you'd have to ask them. But you know, from afar, it, it looks like you know they're attempting to learn uh, and they're they're learning. And so I think that um, you know, as as everybody has said many times before, this these are unprecedented times that we're in right now. And 2021 uh, and 2020 is uh, you know about as as bonkers as it gets in terms of the macro landscape. And so. I think the rule book is set aside uh, in terms of history, and you have to just you know make sure that you're you're doing the best you can on behalf of your customers and your shareholders, and that's what I think Disney is probably doing. So there was a lot of of chess beating and and at least uh, public blowback when you announced this in, in December, both from the talent side, Christopher Nolan, agents, uh, obviously the exhibitors were all upset with you. Um, it seemed pretty clear that you wanted to sort of do this all at once and not have a series of negotiations over months that could get stalled and just sort of rip the Band-Aid off. In retrospect, would you have done it the same way? Would there is there a way you could have done what you wanted to do without freaking out the entire t- industry? I think it would have been very hard um, to make everyone happy um, uh, in terms of before an announcement was made. Um, it's not to say that I don't... Um, Sort of, uh, if I had the chance to do it over again, I, I, I think it's very fair to say that uh, we would have taken a couple more days to see if we could have had even more conversations than we were able to have. Um, but there is a challenge to that, which is, um, you know, you lose the you, you lose the ability to have your story, the the rationale as to why you're doing it be cleanly communicated. And that's what the blog post that I wrote was all about, is to make sure that everybody could hear 
without any third-hand uh, translation um, what we were doing and why we were doing it. Um, and so we had a number of conversations before I published that blog post. Um, but I think it's fair to say that if we had an extra three, four, five days so we could have more and more of those conversations, which ultimately numbered over 700, um, uh, that would have been a good thing. Uh, now, of course, what, what probably would have happened, there would have been a lot of gossip. There would have been a lot of things said about it, um, which would have made it even harder uh, to be able to pull off. And so I think it's fair to say that change is hard and, and people don't like uh, you know change in many cases and, and surprise is also hard for people. And so these are all careful needles that we're, you know, we're trying to thread and, and continue to try to thread. And I'm, I'm incredibly happy with where we're at today, but, but there's no doubt that it was bumpy back in early December of last year. I was assuming that your plan was make the announcement, some people will be upset, and then you're gonna show up with truckloads of cash to make everyone happy. Is, is that plan working out or are you, are you sort of, making people uh, whole, well, you know, obviously you're not trying to make them whole. Are you, are, have they come around and help uh, in part with, with big cash payments? Well, I, you know, one of the things I said, uh, Peter, um, and I probably could have been even more aggressive in saying it uh, on December 3rd, is that our intention at every you know, step of the way was to be empathetic and to be generous with the storytelling partners that we work with. And, and, um, and we were uh, generous, absolutely. And so it's one of those things where, the thing I have to say as an overlay is that the pandemic has not been, um, you know, kind of, uh, uh, you know, easy for anyone economically speaking, in, including Warner Media. Um, you know, just like everyone else, you know, we, we certainly have had things happen uh, in terms of, you know, theater closures and the impact of that on our business. But even with that said, um, we very much tried to be generous uh, as much as, as possible, you know, with our storytelling partners. And so, um, and I'm very proud to say that when I look back at what we've done over the last, you know, kind of quarter or two, um, we've done just that um, and, and proudly so. I mentioned Chris Nolan. I think he was maybe the, the most critical and he's a longtime Warner Brothers director. Is he going to make more movies with you guys? You know, I, you'd have to ask Chris. Uh, I certainly hope so. Uh, you know, I think the world of him and, and, and his, his record speaks for itself. I, I think he's absolutely, you know, one of the finest storytellers that we've ever seen. Um, and so I'm certainly hopeful that, that he'll make more movies with us. We would certainly love to do that. Uh, and, and our, you know, we've been very proud to be associated with him and his team. So, um, but you'd have to ask him that. Fair enough. Let's talk about HBO Max in general. You haven't been on the job a year, right? You're, you're, you're Just in- about a year. It's it's uh, announced last April first, yeah, and uh, and technically started May first, uh, but uh, there was a little bit of work before then. I think it's fair so to say you came in while HBO Max was launching, and obviously you'd been watching it sort of, and you've been discussing it for some time. What's it like to sort of take the reins of something? right as it's launching, it's the key to your job, it's the key to the entire acquisition, but it's not yours. And you have to sort of take it over midstream. Well, I think the most important thing is to be thoughtful uh, as much as possible about what what's the best thing you can do in that moment. And so you know, whether you're talking about April or whether you're talking about the first part of May, because the service launched on May 27th, um, I think uh, you know one of the things that I was most focused on uh, candidly during that period was to order pizza and and bring beverages to the team that was working so hard on it. Because at that point, you're on the runway and you're accelerating and getting ready to take off. So really there's nothing else to be done except for cheerleading uh, and, and making sure that people have, you know, ample oxygen and, and pizza and, and beverages uh, so that they can do the job that they need to do. So you wanna get the thing up in the air, 
On the other hand, you're a product guy. I'm sure you had a ton of notes and, and they range from like small stuff to really big stuff. What, what have you tried to re-engineer or refocus? Pick the right verb for me um, now that you're up and running. Um, and what stuff is sort of locked in and you can't really change? Well, so a couple of things. It, it turns out for launch on May 27th, there's absolutely nothing that can be done to impact, uh, you know, May 27th launch candidate. Um, and, and the first thing I want to say is that, you know, there's been a number of launches in the subscription video business over the last 10 years, and very few have gone off cleanly from a technical standpoint. And this team, you know, absolutely delivered something that um, did not fall over, that worked as designed, and, uh, and, and people were able to consume content from day one at scale. And so I'm incredibly proud of what the team did and uh, so much to be proud of. Um, in terms of your earlier question about, well, what are the things that I was focused on and the notes and this, that, and the other, I'd say that I'm a big believer that when you have a service that is in the business of, of telling stories, of sharing stories, of surfacing stories, that's a pretty emotionally uh, big opportunity. Um, and the big note that I gave, along with a lot of little ones, was I think that we needed to raise our game in terms of the look and feel and, and how people felt when they were going through HBO Max such that the execution of the product design lived up to the caliber of the storytelling inside HBO Max. And so if you take a look at the last 10, you know, 11 months, I think it's, it's uh, um, pretty obvious to many people that have been using the service that it's just gotten better and better and better as an emotionally deep and interesting uh, experience. Uh, and whether that's how search is executed, how the hero art is rendered, um, the user interface design, you know, top to bottom, um, it's fair to say that there's been a lot of great, great innovation there um, from, from that perspective. There's other things as well, Peter, but I, I sense that you're about to ask a second you know, follow-up question. You, you, you intuited correctly. So um, recurring question for your predecessor and, and for you, which is what what is HBO Max compared to HBO and how do you communicate that? It, it's still, I mean, I understand the business rationale, which is that HBO sort of has a finite uh, audience. You want to make it bigger. Um, it seems like the broad pitch is it's HBO and a bunch of other stuff. So how do you, what is, what's the more, what's the, what's the branding that you want me to understand and how do you get that across? Well, I, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of say two things, Peter. First, I'm going to take it up a, a level and talk about Warner Media, and then I absolutely will get back to your question about HBO Max. You know, the mission at Warner Media is to move the world through story. Um, that that's ultimately what we're, we're here to do, and it's a mission. Uh, it, it's something that we're uh, unusual birds, and that we care so deeply about that. And so HBO Max clearly is a manifestation of that. And I would argue it's probably the most powerful and ultimately global manifestation of our mission, which is HBO Max is 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 there to move the world through story. Now, what I would love for you to say about us when we're not in the room is one word: quality. Um, which is when you look at the crowded landscape that you rightly point out, there's a lot of people doing a lot of different things. But if people, when they talk about HBO Max, if the one word they utter is the word quality, well, then we've done our job uh, because the whole history of this company, the whole history of HBO Max, the whole history of HBO has been about quality. And you mentioned something which is also strategically important to us, which is it's one thing if you have a service that is defined by quality, but it's relatively 
um, I'd say you know, narrow is not the right word, but it has a certain sort of focus that has pretty hard edges in terms of a certain demo and a certain sensibility. Our belief is that given the proud history of Warner Media, not just HBO, but Warner Media, we have the ability to open that aperture in a very big way to serve young kids and families and teens and young adults and all these other people who HBO historically has has really not focused on. Um, and so, uh, so that's what HBO Max is all about, which is ultimately quality and then and then moving the world through story, not moving just a specific demo through story, but a, 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 literally the world through story. Politely, though, I think anyone running any streaming service would tell me. They want to have quality stuff that lots of people like. And and watching the way my kids navigate, you know, our Roku TV, they are, they either know there's a show on on some service and they go find it. Yeah. Or they don't know and they're just flipping through. And I don't think they could dis- – they would tell you what Disney is because they understand. Yeah. And they also know there's a couple shows on Disney yeah. that they're watching. Uh, and the rest of it is all just containers that have things and they're happy to watch them on any of them. Um and that kind of seems like that's going to be the reality no matter what you and Ted Sarandos and Bob Backish and anyone else who's running a streaming service tells me. Well, I, so I'd say that um, you hang a lot, out a lot on uh, social media, um, you know, because I, I see you on it. And I would just say, uh, you know, kind of it's clear to me. And, and again, I'm biased when I say this, but when people talk about HBO Max, um, uh, you know, even when they don't realize that I'm in the middle of those uh, kind of conversations, uh, just you're hanging Twitter, out. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I want to make sure that ultimately I'm, I'm aware of what people are saying about us because that is our reputation, and that's very important to us. Um, I think it's fair to say that people are talking about HBO Max using adjectives that they don't use when they talk about you know many of those other services that you just described. Um, you know, there's a reason why that that kind of that tagline from years ago it's it's not TV, it's HBO. Uh, um, you know, the reason why that resonates is because it rings true. Um, and, and so I, I hear you in terms of sort of, you know, kind of what your experience is in terms of, you know, kind of your, your kids and, and what they think about Disney. Um, but I would push you and say, hey, talk to just a random hundred people on the sidewalk. And I think what you'd see, because this is what we're certainly seeing, is that people, you know, literally are talking about HBO Max in ways that they don't talk about a lot of other services. This is not in any way, you know, a slight on others because they're doing great work. And clearly the numbers bear that out for a lot of folks. Um, but we're very, very focused on, on what we're doing. And it's a playbook that has served us well for decades. I think people are going to freak out if I ask them what they think of HBO Max on the sidewalk. <laughs> they want to know why I'm talking to them in the middle of a pandemic. Um, should people understand the difference between an HBO Max show and an HBO show? Should they understand that there's a difference? They should. They should. Over time, if we've done our job, Peter, and, and I'm not saying that that job is anywhere near done, um, but uh, but when you look at uh, kind of what HBO has sort of fashioned itself into over time, because, you know, it's very easy in Hollywood, I'd argue, to have a, a label uh, or a brand that doesn't mean that much. Um, and and, and there's, there's a long, long list of, of, of labels that really don't mean that much. You could put them in front of different stories and, and, and it wouldn't cause people to wince, which is a sign that you don't have a brand that's clearly articulated. I'd say HBO is one of those things that people look at an HBO show without knowing it's HBO, for example, and they say, oh yeah, that's an HBO show. And so kudos to the job at, you know, that the team at HBO has done literally over decades and decades. And, um, and so 
Our job with with HBO Max, with a Max original, is to do the same thing, which is, uh, you know, kind of not, you know, and by same, I mean, have a disciplined approach that when people look at a series like Class Action Park, that they say, oh, that's an HBO Max show. Uh, and and uh, that's a Max original. And so if we've done our job right, the, the sensibility that we need to be true to is younger, a bit more female oriented, um, a little more reverent, you could argue. Um, but yes, is the short answer, Peter, to your, your comment, which is Max Originals should absolutely stand and communicate a certain something. Okay. Uh, let's call that a work in progress then. Because um, I'm, I'm not sure I would get it, but you got time. Um, you got a four-year deal at least, right? Um, you guys said there's, a, there's an ad-supported version of, of HBO Max coming out this spring. It'll be cheaper. You haven't said how much it's going to cost. I'm, do you want to share that with us now? No. Uh, break some news? Okay, good. I figured. Um, so the ads will run on HBO Max Originals, but not on HBO Originals. What's what's the thinking there? Sure. So um, a lot of this is, is, is a function of, again, trying to be as thoughtful as possible and thinking about HBO and the history of HBO. And, um, you know, the conclusion we came to, Peter, and again, I don't want to suggest that you know, kind of anything is fixed, you know, forever. But what we felt was the right thing to do, just given the history of HBO and the fact that HBO really has done something that no other studio has done in Hollywood in terms of delivering something at a consistent level. We just felt that having uh, interruptive advertising in those originals um, didn't feel like the right thing to do. Is that because so the, the kind of content that's in an HBO show? Because you wouldn't want to have an ad in the middle of a Sopranos or a Game of Thrones, or is it, or, or advertisers wouldn't want to be next to someone being beheaded, or is it just you no. want to distinguish between an HBO show and an HBO Max show? It was the latter. It wasn't, uh, I mean, Sopranos has been, you know, distributed on linear television yeah. that has ad breaks. And so it can be done. Anything can be done. It was the latter. We just felt that given the sensibility and and the, the history of the storytelling there, you know, given that we had the opportunity, given it was our network, for lack of a better phrase, uh, it was our service. Uh, we just decided that that uh, would be the right thing to do for customers. So you guys have a big movie catalog. A lot of them are a lot of those movies are made by Warner Brothers. You own them. Yes. Um, a lot are from other studios. Uh, NBC Universal has a deal with you. Disney Fox has a deal with you. Those both run out next year. Um, reasonable to assume they'll want to pull those movies and put them on their own services. It's not a done deal. But but how are you planning for the absence of those movies? Well, in terms of, uh, you know, certainly in the case of Fox, I think that that would be fair to say, Peter. I, I certainly, I've, I've not sort of uh, kind of assumed anything else just given mm -hmm. where Disney has gone. I think NBC Universal, um, we'll see. Uh, you know, I think that, uh, yeah, I suspect that they're thinking through it, but but we'll see the decision that they decide, uh, you know, in, in that, that camp. But in terms of it, when you think about it over the next decade, you know, you should expect more of the same in terms of what we've been doing in the last two years, which is, aggressively investing in our own content where we own it and we own it forever. Um, and that includes motion pictures and that also includes series and documentaries and documentary series. And so I think it's a safe bet to say that, um, you know, if you take a look at the investment just in the motion picture front, because you, you asked yeah. about it, I, I suspect we'll be producing a, a lot more motion pictures going forward than we ever have historically at, at Warner Brothers. And this is now sort of the this big media conglomerate streaming playbook, right? Which is is pull back the stuff that you were licensing in most cases and, and keep as much of it for yourself as you can. Are you sympathetic to the 
the thing you see on Twitter all the time, someone saying, it's so complicated to figure out where all this stuff is these days and you have to subscribe to all these services. I wish there was all one big service that I could subscribe to or I wish there was this thing and they make a joke about cable TV where I just pay a bunch of money and all this stuff's in one place. Um, or do you think we're better off having this stuff sort of atomized and in different services? Well, I think that I'm going to say two things that might sound in conflict. Uh, you know, the first, I'll absolutely validate that, you know, uh, uh, it would be fun as a consumer to have one service and only one service where everything in the world existed. Um, and, uh, and and that, in many cases, of what the music industry is. Yep. Um, and so uh, so I get it. And, and believe me, as someone who has spent their entire career building and aggregating uh, various uh, things, including digital um, uh, uh, music and, you know, kind of specifically video, I, I, it's a very fair point. However, I would argue that the... Um, the path towards having a much more diverse storytelling landscape where people's voices can be invested in and, and, and a plethora of different stories can actually get produced and that there's a business model that makes sense so that you can confidently invest billions and billions of dollars in those storytellers. That doesn't happen if you have one service uh, that is doing it. Uh, that, 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 you know, what you're just describing there is a... Um, a situation where only one player uh, actually makes financial returns, which is the aggregator, uh, and and then everyone else is basically serving at their pleasure, and um, and that's not a fun position to be in, believe it or not, even as a consumer, um, because suddenly you you have a lack of diversity in storytelling, and you're not investing in the next generation of talent, and uh, and when you look at what we're doing or what Netflix is doing or Disney Plus is doing. You're looking at three services that clearly are investing in different storytellers, and proudly so, because each of us has confidence in our business and the future of our business because you know, we're not being disrupted uh, um, because we're the ones that are leaning into disrupting ourselves candidly. And uh, so I, I would say that it's, um, it's sort of like a dopamine hit, uh, that first part of the comment that you said, in that it feels good in the short term, but it really sets you up for, I would argue, a, a, a bad situation over the next several decades. Yeah, I mean, I like where we're at now, right, where I can decide to subscribe to Showtime because Billions is back on and I can turn it off again if I want. Um, I do worry that this scenario you're, 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 you're describing doesn't go on for decades, that it goes on for a decade while all of you guys are investing to get these things off the ground. And then eventually it sort of settles and we get to three or four or five, however many streaming services there are. And you guys all sort of settle down and you're no longer trying to outdo each other and spending gets reined in. And maybe you all get a little more conservative about the kind of programming you're doing. And you even saw, I mean, Netflix is still spending a ton of money, right? But it's they had a reputation for doing really out-of-the-box stuff now, and they're doing bigger and broader stuff more often now because of a bigger audience to reach. Um, how do you keep that diversity and that the, the interesting programming going once things have, have reached more of a plateau? Well, I think the minute that you stop being interesting is the minute you start uh, the slow, you know, course to death. Um, uh, to I don't want to be overly dramatic, but I believe mm -hmm. it. And so, so I'd say a couple things, Peter. You've known me for decades. I am not what you know. I don't think you would agree that I'm a, you know, somebody who's suddenly going to turn shy and suddenly going to turn timid in terms of you know, kind of what I believe is in front of us. Which is, you know, when I look at this opportunity, you know, last time I checked, there's 
you know, eight plus billion people on this planet. And, and, and when you look at what they choose to do each day, um, they spend time sleeping, they spend time working and time with family, but they also spend time um, watching video and being moved through story. And so it's one of the most fundamental things that we do as humans. Um, and when you think about you know, someone like us that has the opportunity to be among the leaders globally in that, you know, the number of, of, of customers we could have in that world is so much larger than anyone is thinking right now, including, you know, kind of when people talk about a couple hundred million uh, customers. Um, I, I think that will be seen in hindsight as modest uh, compared to where we get to go. So so I, I push back on your statement that, oh, within a decade, everybody's going to calm down and, and, and not invest in story. I think this is a much higher ceiling than anyone realizes at this point. Um, and, and, and that's the reason why I feel very good in telling you that I, th I think there's an opportunity to be aggressive for a very, very long period of time. I mean, look at Amazon as a good example where, you know, uh, have they stopped investing in their e-commerce infrastructure? Um, I, I think they're going to be going for probably another many, many decades because it turns out people shop and and, and there's a lot of innovation there to go. So, so I... Um, you know, uh, our, our job is to, you know, kind of in our own way, you know, follow the course that I think is in front of us, which is far more than a decade, Peter. I, I don't think this is a nearly as, as short term as that. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with Jason Kyler. I want to go back to Amazon in a little bit, but, but let me broaden it out a little bit more and talk about uh, other assets that you own. So you, you've inherited uh, this big linear TV business through Turner, mm -hmm. reaches 85 million people. Yep. Uh, bankers want you to sell CNN. You say, no, we like CNN a lot. But you guys have also been clear that, that is a, that's, a, that's a declining business over time. Um, the number, the 85 million people you reach, that number is going to decline. How do you, and you have watched this over the decades and now you get to manage it, right? How do you manage one business that throws off a lot of cash that's very valuable, but is eventually going to go away while building this new business? And how are you thinking about sort of keeping both going at the same time? Well, you already answered the question, which is I think it's very possible to keep both going at the same time. It's hard so though, like, right? There's inevitably a conflict about where, where resources are going to go and, and wh who gets good programming and, and where your energy goes. Yeah, no, so it's ultimately a capital allocation decision, exactly as you said, Peter, which is that's the ultimately, you know, really where this comes down to, which is in a given amount of, of, of dollars that you want to invest in storytelling, what percent do you put towards storytelling in a linear uh, format uh, uh, or lin linear channel in the case of television channels versus, say, HBO Max or, or other, other venues? Um, and so... I look at it pretty simply, which is at the very highest level, which is you, you mentioned that there's 85 million households in the U.S. market that have chosen every month to pay for a bundle of programming and stories, whether it's, uh, you know, kind of news or sports or scripted or unscripted. And that's 85 million. Last time I checked, that was more than the leading SFOD provider in the U.S. market. And so is it going down uh, each year? I, absolutely. And I suspect that will continue to be the trend. But 85 million is 85 million, and 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 the, the, the those businesses are very good businesses. Um, just because something is has long-term declines in its future doesn't mean it's a great business. Uh, um, and and to to kind of turn your your back on that, which we would never do, um, I think goes against everything in terms of you know kind of our, our focus on customers as an ethos. And so, uh, so so it's absolutely it just comes down to capital allocation. Peter is ultimately what it comes down to. Right, but there's, so there's, so that's you, you deciding to take money that you would have gone into a original or some programming that would have gone on Turner and put that money into HBO Max, and eventually it seems like you're going to have some channels that are pretty much you know 
leftovers. Well, you're assuming that you know Warner Media's overall revenue uh, goes down or is flat mm-hmm. over time because that would suggest that our content investment budget stays flat over time. And I don't think that's going to be the case. If you take a look at the growth of HBO Max, which is unusually high, um, you know, with that is going to come an increase in content investment. Um, and then, uh, you know, on the channel side, the linear channel side, I think it's very fair to say that, you know, just look at, you know, the amount that we're allocating towards sports, just to use one example, you know, that investment is going up over time. And so it really comes down to where the rubber hits the road, Peter, is the the revenue profile of Warner Media overall. Um, and I think that it's fair to say that if you take a look at over the next several decades, we have the opportunity to see revenue grow quite nicely if we do what we're capable of, uh, you know, by going direct to consumer and going global. Right. So you're, you're, you're becoming this direct to consumer business. Everyone wants to do that now. You guys used to be a wholesale business. You sold your stuff to Comcast, which sold it to me. Um, and in the case of HBO, your predecessors were able to take that thing that used to be wholesale and sell it directly to me or sell it through an Apple. Um, I'm pretty sure when it comes to Turner, to CNN, that you guys don't have the ability to take CNN and sell it to me directly, right, while you're still selling it to the linear channel. So what can you do with a CNN to make it a direct-to-consumer business? Or what's a, what's an opportunity there for you? Well, think of CNN as, as two things, you know, kind of today, uh, you know, so I can answer your question. The first and most important thing is that CNN is this amazing team that is really, really good at what they do. Uh, they're incredible journalists, and 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 they're able to provide context to the world we live in and to kind of shine a light on, on truth, and, and they do that day in and day out. Um, the second thing that CNN does is today they manifest that journalism through a linear channel called CNN. Um, I would argue that, uh, you know, kind of there's an opportunity to do more than just those two things. I would argue that there's an opportunity to take that franchise that is the incredible team and talented team at CNN and have them manifest their journalism additionally through uh, direct-to-consumer environments. And so you're, you know, kind of, and, and by the way, it's very possible for us to have a linear HBO service and to have HBO Max. And so I would argue, to use that analogy, that CNN, it's absolutely possible for CNN to be able to both have a linear channel uh, and do that incredibly well and be able to invent uh, and serve customers in other ways over the internet. So there's a report out from the information that says you guys are planning on doing just that, some sort of some sort of uh, CNN-branded service that wouldn't be CNN that I get on my TV, but be something else. Um, what's the timing on that? What are the plans for that? That's what they call a leading question. You just yes. make a statement, you assume something. <laughs> You've done this and then, before. And then you try to lull me into answering. Um, so I, I don't have any news to, to share, Peter, on that on that topic. But but I will say that I absolutely believe there's a great opportunity for CNN when it comes to over the internet and what it can do. Keep in mind that when you, you talk about a, a 24-hour um, linear channel, there's a certain shelf space. Um, and it's literally 24 hours of programming. And that might sound like a lot of programming, but I would argue that the world, given how many people are in it and all their diverse interests and all the news that's going on in this world, I would argue there's a great big opportunity that is not limited by shelf space and not limited by 24 hours uh, in, in terms of the amount of programming. So um, so that that's my answer to your leading question. I'll keep trying. Uh- you mentioned sports and spending more money on sports. Uh, AT&T's been clear that, that um, you guys are not going to be uh, re-upping your deal with Sunday Ticket, the NFL package. That seems like a really good asset if you're trying to um, create something that's going to get people to sign up online for, for your programming. Why not keep that asset? 
So um, send a ticket is a part of DirecTV, and so mm-hmm. so please know that that's obviously you know fully separate from Warner Media. Um, sports is, it, it, gosh, Peter, it's such a fascinating topic because you're talking to a very big sports fan. So I'll, I'll, I'll you're a Tar that. Heels guy. I, remember I am basketball. a big Tar Heel, and so I um, I adore sports, and 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 it, it moves me in a very kind of material way, and so um, I, I absolutely love it. Um, you know, but at the at the same time, you also have to be you know very um, you know, kind of thoughtful about, you know, what is the role of sports in, in your company and where it goes forward? And it's very clear sports plays a very big role in Warner Media. Uh, you know, if you take a look at the NBA on TNT, if you take a look at March Madness, if you take a look at um, uh, kind of Major League Baseball and a whole host of other things and all the sports documentaries that we do on HBO Max and on HBO, um, it's a big deal. But you you have to have a, a very well-structured plan that where it works for you um, because it's not just about the leagues obviously making a fair return but it's also about us you know doing great for customers and making a fair return so you're saying I it's think, too expensive well i mean all sports i don't think there's anyone on the planet that could get all sports aggregated in one area mm-hmm. um, but i do think that um you know peter if if, if i were to predict just from a sort of an analytical point of view I think what happens with sports in the digital future is going to be so fascinating. And I think that obviously you're going to want to get our point of view on that and you're going to want to get ESPN's point of view on that and a lot of others folks as well. But I, what I can promise you is that it will change. Uh, I think the sports landscape when it comes to the nature of the live event experience and how it is distributed, it is going to change so much in the next 10 years. We've been waiting for a big tech company to throw gazillions of dollars into the into the arena and buy the rights to a big sports league. And Amazon has now gotten the closest. They're going to spend like $10 billion to buy just Thursday night games. What do you make of your old coworkers going about it that way? And do you think they'll end up making a bigger commitment down the road? I don't know. Uh, speculating about what someone else will do is always, I think, uh, dodgy territory. I think that... Um, but you know the, the way Jeff Bezos thinks. I mean, what's... And he's not a sports guy at all. He's very proud of saying he doesn't consume a minute of sports. Yeah, I think that um, Jeff uh, is in the business of aggregating, uh, and Jeff is in the business of providing value um, as much as possible through his prime service. And so, so clearly, uh, you know, a big noisy league like the NFL can help uh, in in that manner. Um, now, is Thursday night games en- enough, or is it going to be sort of the, the the right piece of the puzzle? I don't know. I think we'll, we'll you know, certainly they will figure that out. I think it's fair to say that there's a number of things that go into the prime value proposition, and this is one experiment. Uh, it, it's funny to say that a $10 billion expenditure could be an experiment, but I think it is. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and and we'll just have to see how that plays out. You and I have talked, you've talked a lot about Amazon and how important it was. You sort of it was basically your first job, uh, more or less, and you spent years there. Um, and for a long time, I think Amazon was one of the most admired companies, and I think it probably still is very well-liked, um, but it also is now, for the first time, getting significant sort of criticism and scrutiny over the way it, it treats uh, employees, partners. Um, have you sort of rethought your time at Amazon and, and anything you would have done differently or, or, or how you view that company? You know, God, it's such a uh, a big, uh, a broad question. Uh, I'm incredibly proud, and 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 I'm very wistful, uh, you know, of, of the time that I spent at Amazon. I was there for nine years, from 1997 through 2006. And you, and you almost went back. Uh, almost went back. Up, yeah, almost went back. And um, so I think incredibly highly of so many people at Amazon. They're just good people, um, and. Uh, 
and it's a very special place. Um, I think it is important as you grow and become something that is an institution, uh, you know, a global institution now at this point, the responsibilities that go with that um, are heightened. And, uh, and, and, and I do think it's important that you know, with each step of, you know, kind of that journey and keep in mind, I'm talking about probably post 2006. So I, you know, when I was not at the company, I I think it's fair to say that um, you you have to operate in a way that, um, you know, kind of, and I don't want to suggest that, you know, kind of Amazon didn't operate incredibly, you know, well in in its early years as well, but there's just, there's more at stake, uh, Peter, is probably the, you know, kind of, you know, you know, a fair way to say it which is um, everything subject to inspection as it should be. Um, and when you're a global institution of that scale and that enormity, um, people look to you, uh, you know, in terms of role models, in terms of, uh, you know, kind of how you treat people and, 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 um, and everything matters. And, and so I, I think that um, the level of inspection is intense, but rightly so. And I just think it's um, in many ways a challenge, but also an opportunity. And so I'm hopeful that when you look at the next decade for Amazon, I'm hopeful that they you know, kind of operate in a manner that um, reflects that enormous responsibility. I certainly know they're up for it and capable of it, given the kinds of people you know, that they are. Um, and, but, you know, it's hard. Uh, you know, I, I don't in any way you know, suggest that what they're doing is easy, you know, having lived it a little bit uh, in terms of the earlier years. Since we're talking about your old gigs, uh, you were you were basically the first CEO at, at Hulu, not officially the first CEO, but more or less the first CEO at Hulu. Uh, did that for several years, made a big splash, kind of fought with your bosses sometimes, went on to do Vessel, uh, a startup that didn't work, could have been a Patreon or an OnlyFans. Um, those were both, one, one was a pure startup, one was startup-ish. What's it like to go from those environments to AT&T and thousands of people and, and, a, and a, just a lot more going on there. How do, um, what did you learn at those experiences and what are you trying to figure out how to do in the new gig? Well, it's funny, that I, I, as you're asking that question, I'm reminded of uh, you know, Steve Jobs gave this commencement speech at Stanford long ago and, and he counseled the, the soon to be graduates. Like if you're looking for sort of a, you know, kind of a nice thread uh, at the start of your career as to, you know, kind of first I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do that. And it's all going to make sense. Um, he basically said, well, forget that because that's not the way that life works. Um, these things happen uh, and it's only in, in, in the benefit of hindsight that you can say, wow, these things really help me uh, have the impact on the world that I'm able to have. And I'd say that um, my life, for better or worse, my professional career has been a bit like that in that, um, you know, as you said, I, my, my first real gig uh, was at a, a true startup, a private company that was trying to sell books in Seattle. And, uh, and it was a very small company, and then it became a very big company. And so, so that journey was uh, very unusual and very unique, and I was very lucky to be a part of something so small and unknown that then became something very big and well-known. Um, and then as you rightly you know, point out, Hulu, uh, which was very much sort of a, an unusual startup, but a startup nonetheless, and then Vessel, which was the absolute garage startup, uh, uh, you know, as you alluded to as well. Um, they're all so different than WarnerMedia, which is tens of thousands of people, a storied history, 98 years of, of incredible storytelling and different, you know, and yet, you know, I do believe that, you know, kind of for some ridiculous reason, I feel very comfortable, um, you know, kind of, uh, you know, with this mission that we're on. A, because I'm a missionary and I so believe in the mission of Warner Media um, to move the world through story. And I, I feel that 
this is the right moment, the needed moment where we need to lean into technology and we need to lean into the future in many ways that Amazon and Hulu and Vessel did as well. So, so in hindsight, it all makes sense to me. But my God, when you look at it on paper, you know, I think for a lot of people that don't know me well, they might be like, what the heck is going on with that guy's career arc? I think it's the career arc's fine. It's just, it's a very, the guy who wrote the Jerry Maguire memo, when you guys can Google Jason and Jerry Maguire and Hulu, uh, you know, who is sort of publicly feuding with with Bob Iger, uh, imagining you in a in an even more corporate environment where your bosses are in Dallas, um, and, and up until now haven't had a lot of exposure to entertainment. Um, it, that's a little hard to to reconcile. It seems like you've made it work for the first year. Um, any 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 readjustments either John Stanky's had to make or, or you've had to make to work with John Stanky? So uh, you, you very, I, I love the way you said you've made it work for the first year. Yeah, uh, uh, you're so, there. You're good. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I, I, I will tell you. I will utter a phrase that I hope makes a lot of sense because it's at every intersection in my life professionally. I've always asked a simple question, which is, where can I have the biggest professional impact? Um, uh, you know, usually it's you know between door A, you know, door B, or door C. And I've always tried to make the decision based on, you know, kind of pursue the path where I believe I can have the most positive impact on this world professionally. Uh, I'm not saying that I ever, you know, kind of, you know, kind of think about what would be easiest or, or, or kind of, you know, kind of be best for the ego or anything like that. But I, I have tried to sort of block out the noise and just choose the path where I feel like um, I'm, I, A, I believe in the mission and I can have the most positive impact professionally, uh, you know, in the time that I'm given on this planet. And so with that said, for me, the decision to jump into Warner Media was an easy one because even though you no, know, it was not a startup, it was not my own startup. Um, it, it had something that I would argue was not available anywhere else in the world, which is the opportunity to work with incredibly talented people um, at a position and moment in time that was quite unique, which is to take this company that has, as you rightly said, a historical wholesale orientation and one that wasn't very leaning into technology and to move it with the help of a lot of other talented people into the future. And to me, you know, when I sort of fast forward several decades and if I'm lucky to still be alive and looking back on my professional career, that would be something that I would be so incredibly proud to be a part of. And um, and so um, so that was my decision. And to your question about, you know, Dallas and the, and the team there, um, it's a great relationship. And you should ask John and, and anyone else that, that you, you choose to talk to. They are incredibly supportive um, and, and very tone aware of what Warner Media is and what Warner Media needs, um, and, and the ways in which it's special and unique and different, candidly, from the other parts of their business. So, um, so I, you know, I. When I mean, I it's a it's a fantastically messy business, right? Compared to to wireline phones and stuff. I mean, I've just got my notes here. Just the the folks that you have to sort of interact with to make your product work right now. J.K. Rowling, Joss Whedon, Ellen DeGeneres, Johnny Depp, Zack Snyder, Ray Fisher has a story out today in the Hollywood Reporter where he's complaining about, uh, I guess you, or at least Warner Media in general, not being a hospitable place for him to work. Um, that's very different for you, I think, dealing with talent directly. Yeah, you know, at Hulu, you know, there, there certainly was 
you know, I, I did spend a fair bit of time both you know, working with studio executives, but also showrunners and and and, uh, and and talent who were incredibly curious about why their shows and why their movies were being distributed on Hulu. We did a little bit of original productions, but it was very early days back then. Um, so I'd say that you know, I, I believe it or not, I spent a fair bit of time in that in that realm at mm -hmm. Hulu for sure. Um, but uh, but you're absolutely right that that, that fiber doesn't sort of uh, give you a call uh, and, and, and sort of uh, you know kind of uh, you know you kind of raise certain issues and so um, so it is different. It's a very very different business than one that AT and T has historically managed. Um, but uh, you know, and on this one, I, I tip my hat to John and, and the senior leadership team in Dallas, which is there is so much respect. Um, for you know, kind of the the nature of what Warner Media does, and it is so different, and it's not for everybody. Um, but for the folks that see it as a mission, which we clearly do, um, it's the best thing out there. And and uh, and if we do our job for shareholders, which is to create value, um, then I think all goes well. And so um, and that's what we're clearly focused on. And I'd argue we're doing a pretty darn good job on uh, you know these past several years. Jason, I tried several leading questions. You didn't bite. I, I gotta, I gotta do this again at some point. <laughs> I always try and call you out, Peter, when you're doing a leading question. You do a good job, uh, Jason. Thank you for your time. No worries, Peter. It's great to be here. Thanks again to Jason Kyler. Thanks again to Joel and Jelani for editing and producing this show. Thanks again to our sponsors who let us bring you this show for free. Thanks again to you guys who listen to Recode Media and tell other people about it. And in the case of Zach from Philadelphia, run a kick-ass donut shop called Hello Donuts and invited me to come check out your donuts. And I did, and they're great. Especially a big fan of the savory donut. That's right, a savory donut with a mushroom filling. Anyway, Hello Donuts in Philly, they're great. Check it out. Thank you, Zach. Thanks to everybody else. This is Recode Media. We'll see you next week.